0: You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, and we're live at 8.02. How are you doing, people? Um, welcome. I'm so excited about tonight. This is great. Just been chatting with our guest. Really looking forward to it. I hope you've seen the adverts. Um, if you're joining us live such a big topic and such an interesting topic to help people evolve, I think. Um, so, yes, tonight, if you've seen the adverts, episode 48 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast, um, all about sacroiliac joint pain forward slash dysfunction. But they're the same, aren't they? I hear you say. I'm hoping you say, because that's the sort of thing we're going to be talking about. Um, and we have the absolute privilege of talking to um, one of the most experienced researchers and people about the topic that I know of um Dr Mark Laslett from New Zealand has kindly got up at some unearthly hour in New Zealand to join us so yeah really looking forward to that um if you're listening um on YouTube then feel free to leave comments as well. Uh, We will see them. And obviously, people joining us on the Facebook page are flooding through the doors now. Um, You can all bring up your comments and your photo will appear on the screen. It's all very interactive. And if you're listening to the podcast, and that's great as well. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, Don't forget to leave um, a rating if you can, unless it's bad rating then just go away but if it's a good rating then leave that and that really helps our results just climb google and for people to actually be able to appreciate um, our guests and the information we're putting out there um Last week, unfortunately, because of technical difficulties, I apologise to people who came along live for us. Um, David Ballins, the chairman of Ballins Insurance, was going to be here and he wanted to be here. But there were some technical problems and it didn't happen in the end. But fear not, because we have rearranged it. And David Ballins will be with us um, on the 25th of May uh, for that insurance special. So stick that in your diary. I do apologise to people who turned up, and um, people who did come. Uh, we're subjected to an hour of chat between myself and Gary Benson, founder of the STA, which actually turned out quite nice, actually. Thank you for the feedback, people. I think we have a nice little natter and address some questions from people who joined us live. Um, and that's actually out available as a podcast now. As with all our episodes, you can download and listen to them in your own time on um, all great podcast players. So there we go. Um, just a little hello to people here. Caroline McKendrick is in the room. How are you doing? Catherine Rymo is here as well. How are you doing? and M- Turner says hi everyone really looking forward to this one and so you should be we are privileged we're well, privileged with all I guess. let's not put an order but we're really privileged tonight um and Anne Cochrane as well how are you doing nice to see you here right um what can I say I've introduced the guest I think anybody who doesn't know him then um just stick it in YouTube I'll stick it in Google and you'll see the amount of research um at least 40 published papers um a lot of them um, relating to the diagnosis and management of lower back pain. There's a list as long as your arm. The best thing you could probably do is go along to Dr. Mark Laslett's website and have a look there. Um, but an awful lot of great information, huge amount of experience. And we are, like I say, we've got the privilege of working him tonight to address the topic of sacroiliac joint pain slash dysfunction. So without further ado, I shall bring Dr. Mark Laslett up here now. hello hello hi there how are you i'm oh, okay dr laslett or can i call you mark absolutely is that okay fantastic yeah i'm um, in new call... zealand we though don't,
1: we don't we don't we don't stand
0: on ceremony too much exactly i could call you a few other words as well in that case but i'm well, sure you could um, <laughs> no i really appreciate it i know it's really early up at um your uh part of the world so i really appreciate it thank you very much for joining us um so as I've explained, we've had a little chat because obviously being in New Zealand, you're not familiar with the setup we've got over here over sports no. massage and sports therapists and there's no regulation. And there's a whole load of different situations. I'm a fan of regulation. regulation. <laughs> well, a lot of that's one of the topics we have is a lot of sports therapists wish we did have more kind of regulation. So this do not regulation. Exercise. Please don't, don't, don't,
1: don't be stupid enough to do that. <laughs> it's come from the man. Because you'll, you'll have all sorts of people uh, wanting to control you then you think you think you're 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 doing it to try and exclude other people from your field right which is exactly what will happen to you once you become regulated. Re- regulated
0: there you go it Doesn't, the it doesn't work. You. <laughs> <laughs> we've had the similar messages coming from osteopaths physiotherapists chiropractors we've had people who have left those organizations because they're like they don't represent me exactly what i do so anyway but um yeah you've got a very long i hate saying you've got a long history because it just basically says you're old but you have got yeah, a I long am. history
1: <laughs> well, anyway, there's only one alternative to getting old and that's exactly, young, so right. I, I, accept, I accept the alternative yeah yeah that's right that's very true but briefly for people who don't know you can
0: you just condense 50 years or so down into a couple of minutes <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm a physiotherapist i trained in new zealand um at the time there's only one school of physiotherapy um i graduated um in 1971 I worked at the um, the largest hospital in New Zealand at the time for five months before I went into private practice. And um, uh, in those days, physiotherapy was um, very much uh, electrotherapy and massage. That was basically it. And so uh, most of my patients were seen every day for six weeks, uh, whereupon we gave them shortwave diathermy and and massage. And so we were glorified masseurs really. And we, we did... I think it was three hundred and seventy hours of massage training as part of our physiotherapy training. So, um, so it was, a, you know, we were fully trained masseurs, and um, and that was how it was. Um, we also trained in, uh, you know, anatomy and physiology and, and things like that. But um, really, we were um, we were and we were trained in exercise therapies as well. Um, and, but we weren't trained like physical trainers are today. Uh, we were trained much more sort of medically orientated, for, particularly with. People with paralysis, and, and strokes, and things of that sort. So, um, and I went into private practice and got a rude awakening to um, to uh, actually life out there treating patients um, with all sorts of injuries, from ankle sprains through to um, uh, you know really severe spinal problems as well. And um, I was uh, really fortunate to um, be taught. Diagnostics and uh, manipulative therapy by a medical doctor when I was a student, actually. So by the time I was qualified, I, I was already a manipulative therapist, which is pretty unusual. So, um, but I was still the practice I took over. They, um, the culture of that practice was um, uh, was massage and and hot packs and a little bit of manipulation chucked in if you needed if you needed it. Um, I did my completed my diploma in manipulative therapy in 76 my teachers were brian mulligan and robert mckenzie they were the teachers and um i became a teacher myself later on in the 70s Um, mckenzie started up his organization the international organization mckenzie institute i was one of their teachers for 15 years Um, i continued to practice um, on my own account Um, i had two large practices in Auckland in New Zealand and um, one of those was a dedicated spine pain practice and I um, I, I ultimately wrote a book on the upper limb uh, which was published in 96 I self published that it's out of print now and I don't intend to do another one um, I started doing research in the late 80s uh, and that research I, I did a follow-up of my own back pain patients and we published that and in physiotherapy general, and um, and then we did a reliability study on sacroiliac joint. Which um, uh, which, but what actually happened was that I, I was taught all the um, uh, basically osteopathic style assessment of the, um, uh, the sacroiliac joint, and uh, uh, mostly Freddie Carltonborn system. But I also knew the osteopathic system um, taught by Alan Stoddard and uh and i also um uh, had some other training as well but those are the primary systems i was taught and um i attempted to um to feel these small movements and 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 there's no question that when you palpate the um the bony structures and you get people to do these test movements uh, you can feel something and um something move um the question was well when i was a student and freddie carlton bond was showing us how to do these things um, I would examine a patient and say, well, the PSA is just not moving upwards the way it should do. Or it was moving too much upwards or something. And he would say, no, it's not that at all. It's something else. And I would just assumed it was me because um, I was the student and he was the guru. Um, I was wrong. And then um, and I practiced that and did it in my clinic a lot. And uh, I felt I became quite competent. Um, then I found my students had the same problem with me that uh, when I said it was such and such, they said it was something else. And I, um, then I was aware of a paper published by Potter and Rothstein that showed us that actually the palpation tests are unreliable. In other words, experts couldn't agree with each other about what was actually going on there. And that fitted in exactly with my experience. And it was not long after that that I actually um, gave up that. Uh, method of assessing the sacroiliac joint and we looked at the pain provocation tests where we uh, stressed the pelvis to see if we could make that reliable and um, when I first did that study we um, uh, we found that it wasn't reliable and that was because I didn't teach people when I was teaching people I wasn't teaching them I was giving them very great liberty as to how they did the techniques all right. And so when, we, when I realised that after the first 10 patients, we didn't get any agreement at all, or very little, um, we, we, I said, now you're going to do it my way and only my way during the study. And that's when we found we could make it reliable. And so that was published in '94. That sort of maybe sort of famous for SIJs, which, which is really interesting because in actual fact, um, uh, the reason why I started studying SIJs was because whenever I thought I had an SIJ problem in front of me, I didn't know how to treat them, mm-hmm. so I became an expert in S.I.J.s, but never felt confident of actually being able to treat the damn things. So that was uh, because I'd given up all of, all that mental, the osteopathic stuff, and now I had these people that apparently had pain in their S.I.J.s. But uh, but once I had that diagnosis, I didn't know how to deal with it, <laughs> which was right. quite a dilemma. Uh, so well, I, need that's pause, we...
0: I need to pause you there for a second because you've already kind of probably blown the mind off a lot of people who are doing their <laughs> level threes and level <laughs> fours sports master therapies in the uk because for example the stalk or test is still taught as a special test in mm-hmm. fact when you get a level four compared to level three and the idea is you're learning kind of more in-depth specialized stuff that's when they introduce all the special tests which are all the osteopathic tests and they're all there and there's tests which invariably you don't really end up using much but why i don't know whether it's the same in new zealand if if other therapists are still being taught these but why do you think they've hung around for so long what is the power are they taught in new zealand
1: still do you still i I don't think i don't think they're taught physiotherapy schools um they they may well be taught at massage therapy schools um that i don't know the chiropractors and osteopaths still teach it when they though we don't have a chiropractic school in new zealand it's but the australians do and um, they they certainly teach those things. Um, they have a different names for them. They always name their things differently. Um, but they're essentially the same anterior anonymous, upslips and downslips, and various things like that. Um, so the osteopaths and chiropractors are still teaching that. I don't know about the massage therapists. Um,
0: and so why, did um, it the why do you think it still hangs around? If people like yourself, learned people in the well, uh, mid 90s, it's attractive. It's attractive. Like it's
1: attractive. It's attractive because if you have an upslip, for example, then you know what to do. You push it down, right? I mean, it's, it's the treatment follows logically from the diagnosis. So in other words, there's a logic to it which um, which is extremely attractive. Um, that logic completely fails as soon as you realize that nobody can agree on whether it's up or down. Mm, I mean, problem. for example, who's the expert? If you and I examine the same patient and you say it's up and I say it's down, who's right? You are. Anyway, but <laughs> what am going to say? I'm right.
0: No, but I know what you mean. But already I'm interested because in the comments, and this is the public, which I've, I was reminded this week that apparently I'm on a crusade and I'm bashing sports therapy and stuff. And because I speak out a little bit, but... I took that on board because it's so important the language we use. Because even now, and, and the people commenting, you can probably see the comments on the right. So many hours of my life wasted learning these tests. No, now, the people no, no, in here no, 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 are no. on our page, they're cool. Really? But if I imagine no. a younger therapist who just paid two or three grand to do it and they've been taught these, and then they hear us chatting saying, Not reliable, waste of time. You know, it's so, yeah. What would you apply to somebody if they said, Oh, great, so I okay. just wasted hours of my life?
1: Well, what, what, what you've got to understand here is that there is a, um, a world of difference between dysfunction and pain. That dysfunction is a description of a lost motion or an aberrant motion of some sort. Okay, that's what dysfunction is. There is no necessary conceptual relationship between that and the pain phenomenon. Right. People can have these dysfunctions and have no pain. People can have pain and don't, uh, don't apparently have these dysfunctions. So there's actually no necessary relationship between the two. And to my knowledge, there's only been one study, and that was done by Paul Dreyfus and published in '96, um, where they compared the, uh, the chiropractor doing the assessments uh, with the um, the, the Gillet test and the Stork test and the, these other, some of these other tests. He did those tests and he found there was no relationship whatsoever between the positivity and negati- negativity of those tests with an anesthetic block to the sacroiliac joint. So in other words, a patient, when they had a positive response to the injection of anesthetic into the sacroiliac joint, um, that didn't have any relationship to the positivity and negativity of these palpation tests and same with the negative tests people who had negative delay or whatever um didn't have negative necessarily have negative tests at all so the reality is is that that's the only study that i know of where those tests have actually been formally and scientifically compared to um uh, to a standard of Mm -hmm. for pain which is we know what that is you stick an anesthetic into the joint fill it up with anesthetic and if the pain goes away you think it's well it's a that's the pain's coming from where that anaesthetic went, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and so that's 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 pretty much the standard. It's more complicated than that, but it's, that's essentially it. And um and that's the only study that I know of that has actually formally compared those things. And the and the answer is, is that dysfunction and pain are not related. Okay. Now, that's, that's a different question. That's a different question. Is is dysfunction real? That's a different question entirely. All right, and the only answer that we have for that is a study done by Ben Stursson, he's a Swedish orthopedic surgeon, where he had you can you couldn't do a study like this now. This was done in the in the late eighties. He um, he had a whole bunch of people with a unilateral back and buttock pain that, were, that was assumed to be patients with sacroiliac joint pain. He didn't do an anesthetic injection to find out if that was true. He just uh, clinical assessment. These people were believed to have sacroiliac joint pain and uh, the majority were women, and they uh, punched little metal balls into the bones, into the sacrum and into the ilion, so that they could see them on x-ray. And then they used a very uh, fine, um, highly reliable technique called um, basically st- a stereoscopic x-rays. They used two x-ray machines where they could measure um, the rotation of the sacroiliac joints and also the translation, which is the separation. And um, he measured the rotation of the um, sacroiliac joints at a maximum of about four degrees of rotation and uh, down to zero, for anywhere between zero degrees and four degrees, Mm -hmm. and translation of about one millimetre, a maximum of two millimetres. So it doesn't move a lot, but it does move. There's no argument about that. And and he found that, um, and this is not, uh, the data analysis is not strong enough to, be conclusive here, but um, but he found no relationship between the painful side and the non-painful side in terms of the range of motion. No relationship whatsoever. That's the only data we have. Mm. Those two studies are the only data that that actually meaningfully meaningfully contributes to the argument about whether or not um, dysfunction is real. That's the Sturison study that says. These movements are not related to pain, um, and they're tiny little movements. So, and they didn't observe any sort of relationship between loss of movement and or, or increased movement and and pain. And in Dreyfus's study, where they compared these tests that we do to um, to an anaesthetic block, so um, that's the only data we have actually. So, the the the, the, the actual. Um, so when i say i don't do these tests anymore this is an opinion which you might you might discard that's up to you but um um, but i i found that these tests were not not reliable and and, in my hands and so i stopped using them
0: what about there's some questions coming in here it's whenever you talk about sacrilegate i think it's one of the reasons why some of the misconceptions hang around but it's it's thought to be very predominant in women who have had children and that's one of the times when that that kind of amount of movement can increase a little bit obviously the laxity increases but how is that over diagnosed because as far as i've read there's plenty of women who go through pregnancy and they don't suffer from sacroiliac joint pain so is there a problem there or is that one of the cases where it can be diagnosed and there is a
1: dysfunction because of birth (coughs) um one thing we do know is that uh, <clears throat> the vast majority of people with sacrilegate joint pain, not dysfunction, mm-hmm. pain, all right, pain known to come from the sacrilegate joint, mm-hmm. uh, women who are in a the, in the, in the peripartum era, pre yeah. or during pregnancy and the period after pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that that is real. Um, one of the things that is very curious um, about that um, is that some women who have had multiple children will know that they are pregnant again because they get their old pain back, and it's the first time they know they're pregnant. In other words, within that first trimester, they already know that the sacroiliac joint is sore again because they get the pain back. And yet, there is no, um, the size of the fetus is so small that it could not cause any effect mechanical effect on the sacral joint. It's not heavy. It's like a kind of incredible. So there's, yeah. there's definitely the, 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 argument there is that that under that basis that sure, maybe there is, see, we don't, we know that the, the relaxation of the ligaments doesn't really occur much until the third trimester. Mm-hmm. So for the woman in that first trimester, nothing has changed, nothing has changed, but there are hormonal changes that is the one thing we know has changed because you've got a baby in there right and so we know that 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 so the, so we are assuming and it's an assumption we don't know mm-hmm. but there's an assumption that the pain one or one of the reasons why pregnant women get pain in their sacroiliac joints and it's common all right that they do um, get pain in that region uh, from that uh, from that source is we think as a, there's a hormonal or chemical relationship. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the chemistry is. We don't go in there doing biopsies on pregnant women. Mm. All right. Um, so that's um, so we don't actually know what the uh, what the chemistry of that is, but we are assuming it is a chemistry of some sort that causes the pain. <clears throat> um, yeah. in the latter stages so that's so we we also know from the work of work by uh annalee from sweden uh, also worked by uh brit Stuger from norway um a lot of this is scandinavian work which is very high quality um brit Stuga, sorry bigger uh big pardon annalee Goodka, her um who i know well um she did a study of pregnant women and she did the um a full McKenzie assessment, plus the sacroiliac joint provocation test that I, I that I teach, she did all of that to over three hundred women, and she found that probably fifty percent of all the women who have back pain actually would satisfy my criteria for sacroiliac joint pain. So, um, so the 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 highest prevalence of sacroiliac joint pain is in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. It's much lower in males, and it's much lower in, um, in non-pregnant women as well.
0: Okay. So, How about, how about trauma? Can people – is there other ways? What sort of level of trauma would you need? Because a lot of people think they've got sacroiliac joint pain because they've fallen nastily or they've fallen of a ladder or something. Is that possible? Is that
1: feasible? Or? Oh, it's, absolutely, it's possible. Can you sprain the, the ligaments trauma, around the, there? Those ligaments happen to be the strongest ligaments in the body. They are the strongest ligaments in the body. We know from mechanical um, some some cadaver work that's been done that in order to tear those posterior ligaments, you have to break the bone first. Wow. Okay, that sets it pretty clear. And you, and you talk to any orthopedic surgeon who's opened up that area and tried to move those joints, uh, you, you, they will tell you that there's no movement that they can perceive. Because the amount of force that has to be used would damage other stuff. They can't use that amount of force. So the, the answer is yes, the sacral joint can be a source of pain following trauma. But it's usually really significant trauma. Like, for example, if you've got your foot on a brake and you hit a lamppost. Okay. Right, there's a shearing force like that. Uh, of magnificent proportions or you're know, uh, like a concrete slab falls on your pelvis and crushes your pelvis and breaks all your bones. Yeah. That's the sort of trauma you're talking about to strain those ligaments. Do you, can you, can uh, stepping off a curve, can that uh, asymmetry, the little jerk that you get with that and get sudden back pain, is that a sacroiliac joint pain? No. All right. I don't believe so. Now, to be fair, As soon as I say that's never going to be a cause of sacral joint pain, somebody will come up and say, "Well, actually, that person described that injury, and I did an injection into it, and the pain went away. So it was a sacral joint." Absolutely, there's going to be one or two around, but it's incredibly rare. It's very, very, very unlikely. Um, Those minor little uh, movements that people make and suddenly get back pain. Do I think that that's a sacral joint going out of place? I don't believe so. Okay, but it's
0: quite significant, I think, because I don't know. Again, in the UK, on Facebook, you look at the forums of sacroiliac joint support and stuff, and I mean they're quite popular yeah. here as examples of just the hysteria and catastrophization and just how it's not often that good to put immerse yourself in other people who are suffering from the same. You've been put in a box, and often that you know we think when we look at the studies that, that can actually increase the amount of pain and, and kind of mm. stop recovery, but um. So, what do you think? I'm is looking some at some, I'm, I'm some, looking at some of the down comments. Down. I'd like to
1: read some of those comments actually, yeah, because uh, people really have really actually right made some some interesting comments. Like Matt here said, an a, a, oh, uh, a possible explanation this. for that pain in the early stages of next pregnancy is a neurotax of pain for yeah. chemical makeup of the body. But uh, strong, I, I, I would I wouldn't argue with that. I think that's probably reasonable. Um, I was thinking that, one, that's what the hormones are, isn't it? It's just sensory input. Well, yes, I think chemicals. so. We don't know. We, yeah. we really don't know. Go yeah. down to Amanda here, um, I've never been pregnant. It took me years of low back pain to get an accurate uh, an accurate, sorry, oh, okay. um, is, oh, diagnosis. Once like, I developed yeah. groin pain and left hip, I started a spiral of treatments and some misdiagnosis, prolotherapy injections, then gave me stiff SIJ ligaments. Seven years later, I was diagnosed with hypermobile, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, do you screen all patients for hypermobility? Then, you know, the answer is no, I don't. Um, I think that um, that is an overdiagnosis. I really do. Hypermobility Syndrome. The range of normality, the range of normal is immense. Absolutely immense. In my early career, I spent uh, I saw a lot of ballerinas and normal for them is insane for me absolutely insane they uh i i remember seeing a retired ballerina she was in her early 40s she was a physiotherapist and of course i was teaching in at the um, cleveland clinic in ohio and um and she gave up her professional career with the new york ballet because of, of of groin and hip pain and um and so, and so she went and did physio, physical therapy, and then she became a mum and all that sort of stuff. And she still had pain. She still had pain in her early forties. Pain never went away, but it, it was the, of course, the end of her career. And, um, and so, uh, and she, I said, look, can I, can we do some photographs of you? And I have lost the photographs. I've, I, I, tragically, I've lost the photographs. But she, she got into a tights and she just grabbed hold of her heel and went poof like this. So her head was way up here. So her ear was way up here. Just standing on one leg, woof, like that, like splits, that easy. Um, just. And she said, oh, she said, I'm so stiff. I'm so stiff. <laughs> you know, and I'm going, yeah, righto. <laughs> she, she hadn't done that. She hadn't done that since she gave up ballet mm. 12 years earlier. And she'd had babies since. And she just went like that. She said, oh, no, I'm so stiff now compared to what I used to be. And I'm going, you are are 1% of the population who are genetic freaks. But that's normal for you, and that's extreme hypermobility for anybody else. Then you have people who've never been able to bend down, touch it, get their hands much below their knees because their hamstrings are so tight. And if you force those hamstrings to be longer, you will damage your patient. Mm-hmm. There are people that from who are really stiff naturally all the way. I, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm over six feet. And so, um, but I was a gymnast you know, now there's no decent gymnast over six feet. Trust me that, but I was, I was a gymnast when I was in my, uh, at school and, uh, but I couldn't tumble. You know why? Because I didn't have the spinal extension. I, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't flip because I could, I didn't have the mobility. And I grew seven inches. We don't use inches anymore, but uh, seven inches in one year when I was thirteen. And I went from being able to touch my toes to not being able to reach below my knees uh, within a year because my hand, my femurs went like this. So um, so that, that and I had to fight to get my to my ability to get my knuckles back on the ground again. I I worked for two years to get that back. Now that's normal for me. There's no there's no normal mobility, mm. and to say a person's hypermobile just because genetically that's the way they are, are they are they um, just because a person can, can put their thumb, which I can't, all right, thumb on their forearm easily, doesn't make them hypermobile. That's one of the tests for um, for hypermobility syndrome, right? And and so and and things like that. I think that these. People are given these labels, and where's the evidence that that is a cause of pain? I I don't know the evidence. I've been looking at the evidence for fifty years, and I I don't know there is any. It's 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 this is what we call eminence based medicine, not evidence based medicine. Mm. it's based upon some guy called inla danlos saying well there's probably two people saying oh these people will go hypermobile that's the reason for their pain and everybody goes oh right must be hey, eh? because he said so this is this 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 the evidence associated with this is really wretched it's terrible
0: i think it was like a man has made it we had we did have a um a a guest on who was talking about it and was again talking about how it can masquerade and people often think that having gifted that it is a gift normally the first question is have you got any party tricks but yeah like amanda was saying it's the other things which can can be seen in people who are diagnosed like uh the dislocations the mitral valve the heart problems in particular um so there's kind of obviously a lot more to it but that doesn't change. <laughs> okay
1: amanda <laughs> your point is taken uh, that's fine i uh, you're excellent no, and i i get it uh, i I'm not talking about people who don't have stretchy skin dislocations, gastroparesis, mitral valve prolapse, yeah, all right, okay. See, as soon as you say something like that, you make a didactic statement that you don't believe in these things. Here's a case that's got to be, you're wrong. And I accept that, absolutely. You know, um, there is a whole bunch of things there which are genetically orientated, which may well uh, cause problems. But where is the cause of your back pain? That's a different story. Yeah. That is a different story. You may well have all these things. I'm sure you do. All right. But is that the reason why your back hits? And I would challenge that. Right. All let's right. go away
0: from hypermobility for the moment. But let's go on to... Okay. So... We know that the traditional tests in isolation have been shown thanks to the evidence by yourself and other people. But then there's now, like you had in your paper, that a combination of tests, particularly two in particular, the provocation tests. Can you talk to us a little bit about
1: those? Okay. One of the things that prompted me to do the validity study, that's different from a reliability study. Maybe I'll spend just a couple of minutes distinguishing between Mm. the two. A reliability study... Um, is only about um, trying to determine if two different clinicians can come up with the same test result. Okay, so for example, be a delay test or, or a distraction provocation test, it doesn't matter what the test is. It can be any test, all right, not just musculoskeletal, but any test. And so if you do a test and I say, oh, it's positive or it's negative, and then I get the same patient to be seen by you, for example, and, and you do the same test, but you don't know what my results are, so you're, we're blinded from each other, do we actually get the same result? Because if we don't, if we consistently uh, don't do better than random guessing, then that test is unreliable. In other words, it doesn't mean anything, because who's the correct examiner? All right, so in other words, we and is, there are statistical methods of actually measuring the, uh, the agreement not just the percent agreement but the yet to um, uh, the percent agreement is a, is one crude method of assessing agreement between practitioners doing the same test on the same patient but then you have to uh, account for random chance guessing and the typical statistic that's used is the Kappa statistic so the Kappa statistic is one that goes from zero to um, uh, to one. Right, so it's, it's zero is the same as random chance. Less than zero is worse than random chance. In other words, you're doing worse than just guessing. More than zero is you're doing better than guessing. You have to get a score of zero point four before we think that your test is satisfactorily is is good enough to be used in clinical practice. So that's a sort of a, a rough guide. When you see you see a k, all right, k equals. 0.2 that's slightly better than chance, but not good enough for clinical practice. Mm-hmm. If you see a zero, a K is equal to 0.6, then you know that that is a rather good test and it's reliable. Now, just because a test we can agree on the test doesn't mean to say it's valid, all right? Now, let me give you an example. I'll just come up with a crazy theory. Here's a crazy theory for you um, people with one green eye and one one. Blue eye will always have unilateral headache on the right hand side. All right, that's just a crazy theory. So you got to first of all, you've got to have a, a bunch of people who have different coloured eyes, like David Bowie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. All right. Then so then you go and then you and then you get a whole bunch of those people and you say, oh, have you got a headache? And there's a subset of those people who've got headaches. And then you have to find out if in fact their um, their, their green eye is the side that they get the headache on, right? So that's – so. but the first is the the beginning of the test or or examining that test is to see if you and I can agree on which eye is green and which eye is blue, right? So that's the reliability study. We're trying to find out if we come up – so I look at your eyes and say, oh, you've got a blue and a – or you've got a brown and a brown. And the next person, oh, you've got a blue and a blue. Oh, and you've got a green and a blue, all right? So can we agree on which eyes are blue and which eyes are green? right? So that's a reliability study that, and and it depends on, um, and obviously if you're colorblind, you might not agree with a person who isn't colorblind. Mm -hmm. But let's assume we're not colorblind. Chances are we're going to have very high agreement as to which is green which is blue. But of Mm -hmm. course you have people like my colored eyes, we're all funny colors, all right? Green and blue, sometimes it's green, sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's brown, you know, in different light, you know, then we might have a bit of problem with agreement, right? But uh, that's 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 the that's the nature of observation itself. But so we have to test our agreement, and that only tells us if the test is worth doing. Okay, worth doing in sense of can we get reliable results from the test? Then we have to find out if we the the next stage is to find out if the test actually accurately tests for the thing we believe it's testing for. For example, in, the, in my green eye, blue eye, headache thing, you have to find out if, in fact, the green eye is associated with headache on that side. Okay? And you probably find out it isn't. So that's makes that test invalid. In other words, it's reliable, but it's invalid. So that's the process we went through with uh, the sacrilector. We did the reliability study first. Mm -hmm. We determined which tests were reliable and how you had to do them to make them reliable because it's... Tests are not inherently reliable. You, If I say you do the t- distraction test any way you choose, then you and I are going to get different results. It's as, as simple as that. In other words, it's not going to be reliable. You have to do them the same way consistently to get reliability. Reliability is not an accident of the test. It is something that is achieved by standardization. Mm-hmm. that's the reality of reliability then you have these reliable tests but that doesn't mean to say these sacrilegal tests which we know are reliable now that doesn't mean to say that they're valid okay and so you have to compare those tests to some sort of reference standard now there are three words that you probably you may have heard about there's a reference standard a criterion standard and a gold standard now, the gold standard is what is the, is the term that people often hear. That is the perfect proof, if you like. So in other words, the, uh, and I, I, I never use the word gold standard because nothing is perfect in medicine, nothing, all right? There's always error. So, uh, so I use the word reference standard, but criterion standard is a valid alternative. So those criterion and reference standards are like interchangeable terms. And that is the the best known method of actually making the diagnosis. So in the case of sacroiliac joint pain, where the reference standard is um, guided and uh, controlled, diagnostic blocks. I won't bore you with the details, but it's complex. You need more than two sessions. You've got to have uh, one injection with one anesthetic, and then another injection, another time with another anesthetic, and the two anesthetics have got to be different, or you can use a placebo. But you, it's a, like a comparison, because we, we we have a problem that some people, you can inject water into their joint, and uh, and, and they say that the pain goes away, even though they haven't put an anesthetic in there. So we have to account for that the source of error. So there's a a, go, a gold standard, reference standard, criterion standard, whatever you want to call it, method of making the diagnosis of sacroiliac joint pain. Now we have to find out if our tests can predict the results of the diagnostic reference standard, mm-hmm. okay? And that's what we did and published that in 2003. Now there was an earlier study by Paul Dreyfus, that same study that I referred to about the palpation tests. Um, he he also uh, did pal, uh, provocation tests, and he found out that what he was calling my tests weren't any good; they didn't predict the injection. And that's published in nineteen ninety-six, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, that was before I started my own study. In fact, that was the motivation for me doing my own study because I was actually in New Orleans with uh, Dr. Charles April at the time that that study was published. And I, we, uh, when he published it, I rang up Paul Dreyfus and I said, I want to see how you're doing my tests. So I traveled to Texas in Dallas. It was just out of a place called Tyler in Texas. I traveled there to watch him and the chiropractor do my test, and they weren't doing my tests at all. So the tests that they were doing, they were calling them the same name, but they weren't the tests that I was doing. All right. So, so that's why there's a big difference between the result, he, results he got and the results that we got. So that's when we decided we had to do our own own study, and we did that. And we found out that, um, well, before we, we did that study, I was aware there were um, many patients who had positive individual tests, but I knew that they didn't have a sacroiliac joint problem. They had something else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so I knew that these tests weren't always; they might be positive, but that doesn't mean I, doesn't mean to say that the patient had a sacral joint problem. So, um, so we knew that there were a problem with what we call false positives. So the tests were positive, but the person didn't have the problem that we think that the test is used for. So then we um, we found uh, by trial and error, I found that if a person had three or more positive tests then I was much more confident about the person having sacroiliac joint pain. So that was how the idea of the composites came about, just through just working with patients and finding it, with well, one test positive, but this one's not positive. So I didn't feel confident there was a sacroiliac joint problem. But when they had three or four or five tests positive, then I felt feeling much more confident that it was, that it was a problem. So we put that to the test. We actually examined that in, in formal research where – I, was, um, uh, I did the examinations, and the, t- the tests, and Dr. April did the injections, and he, he didn't know the results. He was blinded from my assessment results. In other words, he, he, he couldn't bias his, his diagnostic injection result by knowing what my tests were. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we removed that aspect of bias by blinding. And uh, we found that my hypothesis, which was three or more positive tests, was actually pretty good. It was about right. Um, in fact, if you have four or more tests, it's even more likely to be sacrodact joint, and five tests is even almost certainly sacrodact joint, but three is the optimum number. Two, depending on the test, can give you a, uh, some predictability, quite good predictability, but then that has to be, um, that's, and, that, and, and that was repeated, that study was repeatable, that part of the study was repeated by Peter van der in the Netherlands. Now, I've never met Peter. I've spoken with him on the phone. I have corresponded with him, but I've never taught him, to my knowledge. I've never um, I've never uh, collaborated with him, apart from in making some comments together on one or two things. But he did a similar comparison, comparing the provocation tests, which were done pretty much the same way as I've always done them, two double diagnostic injections and he got almost exactly the same results as me. Now that is incredibly rare to for two studies, which are completely independent of each other to get almost exactly the same results is incredibly unusual. It's in, it's, he, the, I won't bore you with the details, but the, the likelihood ratio, which is an overall measure of validity was uh in my study was 4.2 his was 4.1 that is like scarily mm-hmm. similar talk uh, to us about the tests
0: because i one i'm interested how many people in here actually because i'm sure everybody in here has done or continues to do stalk tests gilet test um what were the tests which you were including which were the two which um you felt by themselves was, in, were the best indicative
1: oh no the two no there's no i don't i use there are f- six tests actually you you can use, right? Right. Um there's the distraction test. Now some people distraction and compression, right now. Mm-hmm. Distraction by the osteopaths is the opposite to what I call distraction. Oh right. So when you when the patient's lying face up and you push down on the anterior superior spines, mm-hmm. the osteopaths often call that compression. Right. It's actually not. It's a distraction test. Mm-hmm. Right, and you only have to know look at where the sacroiliac joint is, and you can see that when you you get a skeleton, you push down on it. The actual the the sacroiliac joints part they separate. Mm-hmm. So that's why I call it the distraction test. The osteopaths are palpating the posterior superior iliac spines, and so when they do the distraction test, the so posterior iliac spines come together. So they think you're compressing the sacroiliac joint. They're wrong. The sacroiliac mm-hmm. joint is being distracted. So. In proper biomechanical anatomical terms, Mm. when you lie the patient on their back and you push down on their anterior superior spines, that's distraction. When you lie the patient on the side or you push the ilia together, that's compression. Compression one.
0: Okay, fine. All right. So make sure
1: you don't get those around the wrong way. All right, because there is a little bit of confusion out there. Then there's Gainsland's test, which is um, where you bend one knee up and you. Um, it's all on YouTube anyway. But, yeah, you can find um, these tests on YouTube. Yeah, it's really. Um, just look for. Uh, many people have done YouTube videos. Um, the one that I like is done by the physio um, education group. or something, is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a bunch of um, Dutch, I think, physios. Mm. Yeah. Um, th- this is probably I you can look on my Facebook page. I've got a page with sacrilege. Joint we'll put a on. link up to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, that's that. That's my, me doing the test, but the guys in the Netherlands are doing them just fine, mm. and uh, there are people who do them terribly. Um, but so there are many videos there. But the Gaineson test is like a torsion test where you bend one knee up and you extend the other hip and you and you, and you, you rotate the pelvis one way, then you rotate it the other. So that's Gaineson's in one direction, Gaineson's in another. That's another two tests because on, on on the right-hand side, you can do an anterior rotation or, and then a posterior rotation. So there are two Gaineson's tests. Mm-hmm. Then you have the thigh thrust test where the patient's lying on the back and you, push the, uh, you flex the hip up to 90 degrees and you're pushing down through um, down you put your hand under the sacrum so you're shearing the ileum posteriorly on the sacrum that's a shear test and i call it the thigh thrust test some people call it the posterior shear test it doesn't matter what you do then you have um the uh the sacral thrust test with the patient lies face down you push on the sacrum and you're pushing the uh, sacrum anteriorly with respect to the fixated ilia. so you're stressing them in that direction Mm-hmm. Then you can use the bump test, which is where the patient stands on one leg um, and, and they raise their heel off the ground. And with a straight knee, they bump their heel down on the ground. And that's, we know that test is reliable, but it's never been tested for validity. Um, yeah, that's uh, one, then. that's a bump test. So that's shearing at the uh, superior, inferior at shearing. So those are, those are the main ones. You can use the Faber test. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the flexion, abduction, external rotation test, or the four sign test, and there's another test called the the um, the four uh, P test, which is a combined uh, Faber test with distraction. So there are a number of mechanical stress tests to stress the sacroiliac joint that you can use, and they're pretty much interchangeable. Those tests you can, for example, you when when you when a, you have a person who's like six months pregnant. You don't lie her face down and thump on her bum sacrum, do you? Makes sense, right? So that's so you you have to substitute another test. Um, nice. When a person's really, really fat, you can't even find the anterior superior iliac uh, test. So the distraction test is really hard to do well on a really fat person. So there are so, so you'd use a favor test instead, for example. So there are some variations that you can use, which are uh, legitimate. But what we've studied is a very, very strict, limit, uh, uh, strictly limited number of tests, and we found that those to be valid. But there, are, and I found in clinical practice, you can mix and match a little bit uh, according to circumstances, which is fine. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's. So these provocation
0: tests um, together collectively um, can correctly diagnose that the sacroiliac joint is the cause of the pain. So let's imagine that. No, oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 hold on. No, no,
1: no, no I, as a scientist, I can't. You can't. No, that's do that. fine. Uh, I would track that because there's an error margin. Yeah. All right. The error. I get it right according to the re- the published research. My accuracy is around seventy seven percent. Okay, so
0: it increases, right? the, yeah. Makes oh, it increases the likelihood. The likelihood. That's the Dramatically. Expression. Dramatically. Yeah, Dramatically. Yeah.
1: Right. So, so what do you example, go and do
0: then? What do you go? Let's 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 move to you have identified that people have gone to your website. They've done the tests. Three or four or more of them have proved positive as opposed to doing a stalk or trying to palpate. And they're and not you're looking four for. Times
1: more likely to be right than wrong. Yeah. Say that That's again. Not bad. Yes. Yeah. You're four times more likely oh, exactly. to be right about the sacrilegic joint being yeah. a source of pain. than it's being being wrong bit. about that. So how's that
0: going to change? Because we had one question in there. So this is something they can do. This is something which is you're moving away from the kind of the unlikely stuff to the more likely stuff, which is great, which we need more of. What do you do then when you've identified that? What would your follow up be?
1: Um, Knowing that you have pain coming from a sacrilegate joint doesn't tell you what to do. No. It doesn't tell you. Diagnosis is not. um, Doesn't automatically give you a treatment. That's the attraction of the dysfunction model, uh-huh. where if you have an upslip, then you push it down. If you downslip, you do it the other way around. If you've got an anterior anonymous, you push it backwards. Uh-huh. You know that, that, that that's the attraction of the that the, the dysfunction model of pain. The problem is there is a disconnect between the evidence that shows that these dysfunctions are actually the reason for a person's pain. We don't actually have any evidence to prove that. That's just an opinion that has been pro- promoted um, basically by the osteopaths since the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So um, and, and, it ha- and the only evidence we have shows that they're wrong. Mm. So the, so that's the only evidence and it's only one study. So, um, so that's not necessarily proof that he's wrong either. That they're wrong about that. But here's the thing is that if you know you have sacral joint pain and you follow my system correctly, Mm-hmm. you're you're going to be more often right than wrong mm-hmm. okay significantly more so okay you'll get it right 77 percent of the time if you follow my rules all right at least it right? i i i think i get it right about 95 percent actually now but i but the evidence the published evidence is about 77 um but that's <clears throat> um i occasionally get it wrong not often mm-hmm. uh, but so so you know you've got a pain coming from that joint now What's the cause of the pain? Why does that hurt joint actually hurt? Now, we don't know what causes the pain from the sacroiliac joint. Is it a chemically mediated thing or not? And my belief is the majority are chemically mediated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Majority. I don't believe that the majority of these are mechanically caused through being stiff or being hypermobile. I don't believe that. I have
0: interest, one question before we go on to the possible causes. How, what sort of percentage are we looking at? Obviously, you have seen an, you see an awful lot of patients who come in with their own diagnosis of this. What sort of percentage are we talking about where you do get like three or four positives, pushing that likelihood up?
1: Oh, we, we have that data. That's really simple. Um, um, 7% of my patient population that I saw um, in the late 1990s, because before I did my, my doctoral studies, um, I was in private practice and I was seeing, you know, we, we, deferred, we did a consecutive 200 patients in a row with back pain and we, did the, all, we always did the sacroiliac joint tests on them. Mm-hmm. 7% of the patients in that population actually had satisfied my criteria for SIJ pain, 7%. Okay. Now, uh, in different populations, it is different. It mm-hmm. really is. Like, for example, Annalie Gutka found in pregnant women, it was more like 50% wow okay so and but if you're if you're a a person who's like 70 years of age like me and you have back pain um and you're male all right um then the chance of that being sacrilege joint is probably less than half a percent yeah all right so it's it really is enormously variable you can't you can't Use prevalence as a baseline. You have to. You yeah. look at your patient. If a patient is female and pregnant, then there's a 50% chance. If, the, if he's an old bugger like me, all right, then then the chances are almost negligible. There's going to be SIJ. If you're a 20-something man, then you might have a 7% chance. If you are a um, a female who's never had a baby, all right, and you know you're not pregnant, then it might be slightly higher, but it's not a lot higher is the danger
0: going to be if you take the dysfunction out of it then you're taking away the majority of the solutions absolutely oh dear sorry everyone
1: well no Um, it's true no no you know this is really really important for people to grasp is that Mm. if you actually do have sacroiliac joint pain you know it's that's the joint people have had it proven by injection Mm. almost everybody i've had who's had proof that this is a sacroiliac joint pain problem I right, have had failed manipulation. Mm. Manipulation doesn't work with these people mm. It only works with people who have a diagnosis of dysfunction through palpation tests. Mm. Now what I I mean I've experimented with this for, for a long for decades and I can tell you with utter hand on heart is that the people who respond to manipulations, whatever the manipulation, all right, do not have joint pain. Mm, because so,
0: you're manipulating it playing something. So if, that you is diagnose,
1: actually- if you diagnose 90% of people as having a, a dysfunction in their joint, and you manipulate them because of that, the chances are you're going to get exactly the same success rate as a person who never does those tests at all.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Let's check Now, that,
1: that, that, that we actually have evidence true evidence, good evidence, quality evidence, to prove this. And this was done by a study by uh, uh, Flynn and Charles and Fritz, and it was uh, published in the late, uh, in the early 2000s. And what they were looking for was a so-called sacroiliac joint syndrome. In other words, they, they had a particular manipulation technique that people have found very, very often successful in treating people with pain in that, var- in that area. And so uh, on the back and, and in the area. And so they looked, they did an, a very good high quality study where they looked at all of the tests, pain provocation tests, all of the gilet test, the stalk uh, test, the anterior anonymous thing, the, the malleolus length difference and, 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 and all that sort of, those tests are all done. Um, you know, they did all of those tests. They did all the provocation tests, and they took a massive amount mass of data, whether the hip movement, what the range of motion in the hip was, and, and where they had pain with flexion and sitting and standing, masses of data to find out what could predict the outcome from the manipulation. And they found that none of the tests, none of the tests predicted it. Mm. No combination of tests predicted it, of the sacroiliac tests. That's provocation tests and the palpation tests. Nothing predicted that manipulation. Nothing. They found that uh, that no pain with lying, uh, no relief of pain down, lying down, um, a loss of uh, no loss of hip rotation. There's, there's five things that they found um, that would actually predicted the outcome. That's that. That, if you like, that is that was the death knell of the concept that manipulation is useful for sacroiliac joint pain. It isn't. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you think if, if let's imagine you have, uh, unless you're working with pregnant population, then the chances, the amount of your um, clients coming in who actually score positive on three or more tests is going to be, like you said, around 7%, for example. Well, again, on it depends. On yeah. If you're
1: talking about, if you're, you're doing a lot of athletes, for example, you're massaging, you're doing sports therapy, massage, what have you to, a lot of athletes. Yeah. These are going to be non-pregnant young yeah. people in the main. Not necessarily because a lot of, a lot of middle-aged people do actually um, are engaged in sports these days. But yeah. but you're probably your population is going to be younger rather than older, right? Mm. Am I right about that or not? Hmm. What is it? The full full age age spectrum is it? Yeah. Oh well, okay. Uh, then uh, well, well, whatever the re- I'm, I don't know. It depends on your patient population. But if you talk yeah. about young people, then the then the prevalence of sacroiliac joint pain is going to be low. It's going to be low. So when
0: you do get those positives, one of the advantages is then in dealing with that person it's probably not worth going down the avenue Avenue you'd go down with some other mus- musculoskeletal kind of thing if it's related to muscle weakness or or something like that because you could be wasting your time you're better off maybe looking although we talked about this early on you, if it's a pain thing you, you, it's a good idea to look at the psychosocial factors because that's, oh, that's that can yeah, that that right. affect pain can't it
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the uh, one of the we had this chat um, before we went on went live, didn't we? And um, and that uh, I, I I hate pendulums, yeah. uh, and I've seen pendulums swing backwards and forwards on a number of different um, uh, popular theories and popular treatments. Uh, from I was one of the first physiotherapists, for example, to do acupuncture. And, uh, and I did that for 10 years, and it was unreliable in my hands, so I stopped doing it. Um, um, I've, I've, I've been, uh, been a, a, a teacher in manipulative therapy. I don't do a lot. I do manipulate still, but not that often anymore. There are a number of people. I found that Mackenzie was absolutely correct. He, asked, he said to, he was a teacher in manipulative therapy. He taught me. He was my teacher uh, in, in the, in the Carlton Board Evian system. And, um, and he asked the question, why do we have to manipulate all of the patients just to get the few that actually need it? And that's a good question. And that's true of any therapy. You know, if you take everybody, everybody, and you bring them and you massage them, you're going to get successes. Of course you are. And some of them will be like, this is the first time I've ever had relief. And you'll think you're God. But trust me, waving a crystal will get the same effect. You'll get still get successes, and a lot of this, a lot of this, is the influence of the of the therapist directly psychosocial emotional interaction with the patient, that um, that just is the thing that that person needs. Now, you, you know, you can't you can't escape the therapeutic alliance that occurs between the therapist and the patient. The patient wants to get better, wants to feel better. All right, so they they're already primed, and so if you if you slot into their psycho-emotional needs, you're going to get success, irrespective of what you do. Mm. I can tell you, as a as a teacher who has taught pretty much on just about everywhere on the on the planet, um, and this is culture independent, language independent, makes no bloody difference at all. Is that when I teach, see patients on courses, people I'm teaching and somebody, a therapist or a doctor will bring a patient in and I examine them and I treat them. I get far better results on courses Mm. than I do in my clinic. Why? Because I'm the guru. Of course, yeah. I'm the guru on the course and that and you can't escape the impact that you have just simply because you are who you are doing what you're doing to a patient who actually is looking to feel better all right now um and the bigger the guru if you're a surgeon you know you you probably heard this all the time you know he um he told me that um that this had to be cut out or this had to be fused or this had to be right so he put me to sleep he made a hole in me he ripped that piece out he sewed me back up again and now i'm fixed the placebo effect of that is massive it's massive the placebo effect of surgery is huge now manipulation you know, look, I went and saw the chiropractor and he said my L5 is rotated this way and he put me on my side and he rotated it the other way and there was this massive noise that came out of my back and I got better. The placebo effect of that is pretty good. Same with an injection. He stuck a needle into my, into my back and the pain went away right away and I've been pain-free ever since. The placebo effect of that is huge. The low placebo, really low placebo effect, is when you look at a patient and you say, "Hmm, well, it'll get better." That's, that has no no that no placebo value at all. Yeah, very little. You know, some people are impressed by the fact that a guy's in a white coat with a collar and tie and, and, and a stethoscope around his neck. All right? all right, Some people are impressed by that, and that, that, even that will that, oh, okay, it'll be it'll be fine then. Okay, and they'll go away and get better. The placebo effect, you cannot ignore it. Mm. Now, when you, you're a therapist who's massaging people and you get, oh, I feel it as it, a knot here and I work at that and they go, oh, shit, that hurts. And, oh, you work at that. All right. There's a significant placebo effect with that. It doesn't matter what you do. Now, these are things that that, that, that I've had to confront about myself in treating patients for 50 years, and you can either honestly address that, or you can ignore it. But if you address it and you look at it honestly, then some of your great results are going to be because the patient needed to get better then, and mm-hmm. you're the person that did it. Or the patient was going to get better, and they had been to see this person, they didn't get better. They've been to that person, they didn't get better. They've been to that person, that didn't get better, and that, that by that time the patient was already on the improve. They come to see you, and magic happens. Mm-hmm
0: right? It happens to
1: everybody. I've I've had my patients go to somebody else and, 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 and be miraculously better
0: Hmm.
1: when I didn't fix them. It happens to me all the time. You know, I, and that's, 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 that is because the patient was ready to get better, whether that's because of natural history, the fact that it was going to get better anyway, because the pathology was going to self heal by itself. Um, Uh, or whether it's because of the psychosocial aspects of things i have no idea but it doesn't matter it's just you have to be honest about why people get better and uh, sometimes i would argue that patients get better in spite of what we do not because of what we do right
0: look it's 907 there's so much in there i want to round it up and just do some take-home points because there was a lot of questions in there and it is a topic which can attack a lot of therapists because it's a prime example of something which if you look at if if you've done a course which is focuses on dysfunction it gives you something which you looks like you can fix you can identify it you can tick that box you can fix it they will probably feel better after it when they walk out your clinic and that's going to make you feel great about yourself and like I always say it's not we're not saying that anyone's conning anyone i know that most therapists i like to think most therapists are doing it because they're they've got great empathy and they want to help other people and it's a beautiful trade to be in and everything but when it comes to the sacroiliac joint i think it's a good example of something where your time can be misspent if you're focusing too much on the whole dysfunctional path which we talked about before and correcting stuff and it was big once and it's still taught today but I think it's a good example if you can accept that and it won't be many of your patients who have actually got it unless you are um, uh, your clinics are full of pregnant women but it's probably going to be a low portion but when you do now have the tools and thanks to the studies of um, Dr. Laslett there are the provocation tests now which you can put together and isolate these people who have got that then yeah or, more likely, to have or it, more likely to have it very good I like that it's not a case of great now I can fix it that's the mentality we need to get out of it's a case of Okay, so that means that it's not that, that, or that. It's less likely to be that, that, or that. So I'm better off going down this avenue now. And in this case, if it is well, you can check again it's be case history if they've had a car accident you should know about it if they've got some inflammatory inflammatory response or ankylizing spondylitis or something then you should know about it but if it's not any of that then it means that you're probably not going to progress with strengthening exercises and give them the hope that by doing this you're going to fix them or give them the hope that by putting them into the position and rocking their pelvis it's going to put them back into alignment again because they were never maybe probably potentially out of alignment. So. I'm hoping that not too many of you are actually feeling that this is just another superpower we've taken away from you. If anything, it's going to give you more power because it helps you get a little bit more critical about the tests you've been taught. I mean, that's it really. Um, help me here, Dr. Lazio. I want people to walk away feeling empowered rather than, Oh, you've just taken sure. another tool away. What would you say? With well, your no,
1: I, I do believe that, that, I mean, I probably have, um, um, Uh, punished people who who are believers in these things and I and I it's apologize not for that no I I know and I and I do apologize for that but but the point is is that the therapies that you do um so long as you use them honestly and responsibly to, um and that you don't claim to be diagnosticians and that's 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 a tough science by the way and that takes a lot of years of 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 of, of academia to be a good diagnostician, so don't um, don't 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 claim to diagnose. I think that was, that was silly to do that. You, if you are mass, doing massage as your as your primary thing and exercises and what have you, nothing wrong with that. It's a perfectly legitimate um, method of managing people in pain. That's perfectly fine, and um, and also um, doing things like massage. I think massage has a really important role in uh, in preparing, um, particularly preparing athletes for. Um, for competitions and stuff like that. I think that's actually really important. Um, and sometimes um, when a person is working out of the gym and they, they're, they're just, they've overworked themselves and things like that, I think that's really a massage can be quite a valuable um, method of, of of relieving symptoms as a consequence of working out uh, or changing when people are cross-training, they change from one uh, type of training to another. They get, um, they get basically DOMS, if you like. Um, you know, uh, and things like that. I think massage can be valuable, um, helping people through that process as well. So there, are, there's a lot of there's a lot of good value in what you guys are doing, and I have no problem with it at all. And I certainly wouldn't, um, and I certainly don't think that, um, don't believe that I'm invalidating what you do. maybe what I have invalidated is, is the reasons why you're doing them. That 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 that, that was, there are, there's too many. Uh, too much evidence against the dysfunction model, particularly with SIJs, that that uh, that it would be irresponsible of me to to leave you with the idea that you should continue with that process. I don't think you should. I think it's that's that's diagnosis which has no has evidence that strongly is 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 against it more than uh, that's certainly not for it. So, but there's not there's nothing wrong with what you're doing in terms of therapy. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I wouldn't select a therapy based upon um those palpation techniques that's important fantastic good
0: i think we've i think we've won them back probably not all of them but most of them that's good oh no you <laughs> won't no no, no.
1: I, I, i'm guaranteed i always upset somebody for sure it's, know, but it's that's, tough but, it's tough well you can't you you cannot yeah it's, it's that's reality and i and, and i i live with that um uh, comment all the time, so that, that's and I, it's not because I feel nasty or I'm, I'm trying to hurt people, but the reality is is that um is that you can't please everybody all of the time.
0: Right, fantastic. I mean, in a way, we will be continuing this kind of topic next week. Where we're going to have a we're going to be talking about general topic is going to be how much the words matter but we're going to be talking about that will incorporate what do we believe is happening what do we tell patients are happening um what are the mechanisms of actions we kind of quote because a lot of the time you keep doing what you do you just change the vocabulary so we're going to talk about that um, and i'm sure i'm, well, I'm just
1: i uh, just about can I i'm just looking at Go a on. huge number of comments here and is it possible for me to actually um get a, a download of those comments so okay, I, I think we can sort it out somehow. Yeah. Or yeah, I mean, because, they'll be on Facebook I did, forever. i have been talking and discussing things and I haven't really looked at the comments <laughs> and I, I no, well, I've looked at them, but, but, but of course when I'm talking, I can't, I can't, yeah, I, 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 do I'm not, I can't read and talk at the same time. I, mean, I don't know anybody. I can, who really I can, can, can either
0: make a, uh, I can copy them all out and send them to you or they'll be on Facebook. Anyway, this stays on Facebook forever now. So you'd be able to go in there. Is and that right? Oh yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Can, you, can been, you just send me the link so I
1: can actually, quickly scan them, and if, if there yeah, is exactly. some particular question that i think the, that i would like to address i may well do that
0: yeah, yeah. it's not a problem I mean, john, john gibbons I'll, I'll for try. example john gibbons has, has sent us or me um chapter 11 from his sij book um uh, regarding the five provocation tests that he wrote about many years ago john gibbons is an osteopath who's been in the business for a long right. time okay um Oh, I'd love to get you two on a show together. But anyway, um, uh, so yeah. I was John, give us a
1: comment. I just sent you a chapter 11
0: from my SIJ book regarding five. Yeah, righto. Yep. Um, there'll be some yep. interesting stuff there. But uh, John, again, is somebody who's had to move with the times and a lot of the stuff he was teaching 60 oh. years ago. He's older than you, John Gibbons. He's that 95. Good Lord.
1: <laughs> Not too many um, people like
0: that. And Mike Grice, <laughs> interestingly enough, is a an osteopath that he's evolved a lot. He's um we work with Mike a lot and and yeah. he's made some great comments as well. So yeah. Um I'm looking at his we, comment.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah there's an awful lot there. But you'll be able to look at it in your own time. I'll send you okay. the link and everything. That'd be great. Dr. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Um it's a pleasure. I did see the comments, I just didn't wanna break the flow because so often with these cases the first reaction with guests is like oh but 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 then you need time to watch it again and then digest it and sometimes lower the guards and defenses down and actually realize what's what's what the message is but i do appreciate you giving us your time um, it's given us a lot to think about in terms of further education for people. Um, a lot of stuff on your website. Let's just bring up a screenshot. There Especially is. Um,
1: I would. I would say that doing my back pain one hundred and one course. Um, if, you, if you're interested in actually learning about back pain, uh, or, yeah, If you go, if you scroll, if you look at that website, you'll see at the top of there. Um, you'll see. Uh, let me just—I'll just bring it up on my computer on the other side here, just a second, so I can actually make sure that I'm—we're talking on the same page. Um, along the top, you'll see other links. Yep. All right, and when yeah. you click on the other links and you go down there, you'll see um, Southern Musculoskeletal Seminars, which okay. is, is the organisation that hosts my courses, and um, and in there you'll see um, that you'll be able to do back pain one hundred and one, which is. My, basically that course was written last year. I I created it last year specifically for new grads, physios and doctors, right? Because, um, the guidelines that are published by governments all over the world, um, they are written mostly for people who don't want to see back pains. Right. Right. I, my back pain 101 starts from that point and say, if you want to start treating back pains, if they want to start doing that, this is where you should start.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not with the guidelines. The guidelines are hopeless. Okay. Um, they they tell you what not to do mostly. They don't tell you what to do, That's and it. they don't do all right. So we we try and we try and um, give people a, a starting point. And then if you want to do more, you can go on and do back pain two hundred one, which is my advanced assessment, and then. The 300 series of courses is uh, basically a clinical doctorate level. So um, whether or not you choose to go down that route, that's entirely up to you. But um, that's that's a series of 10 courses. But the first two courses, Backbone 101, Backbone 201, that will show you the basic methods of assessment and how to manage people in, a, yeah. I think, an evidence-based way, not evidence-informed, evidence-based, uh, big difference. And... Um, and uh, that's um that that's something that you can do if you wish fantastic and for people not, listening on the expensive. podcast the website
0: is mark with a k so it's m-a-r-k laslett l-a-s-l-e-double-t dot n-z so it's mark dot n-z but we'll have links as it for it as always on um podbean who hosts the podcast and also we'll put some links in the comments here as well so you can check that website out and and again, just stick into ResearchGate or something, just have a look at the papers. There's an awful lot of interesting papers to read about. Again, I'll put some links on here for people who want to look through some of the great papers, which... Um,
1: the sacroelectron course that I do in my, my 300 series, that's three, going to be 303, um mm. uh, pain 303. That's a course devoted entirely to the sacroelectron, where everything that I've talked about is covered in detail. But that's just Fantastic. on sacroelectron.
0: Okay. And these courses are
1: online, obviously? Well, hold on. No, my my flagship course is being, uh, I've stopped enrolling people for that and I'm reimagining the whole thing into this Backpane 101, 201 and 300 series. So I've just started creating, converting my old course into the series. So the Backpane 303, which is Sacri joint, that will probably be available sometime in August. Okay. Do you ever come to the UK? Been to the UK before? Of course you have. Many, many times. (laughs) <laughs> i right, taught, well, uh, taught a lot in the uk i haven't been the last time i was teaching in the uk was 2007 but that was in the isle of wight and also in, oh, right. in american and, and ireland yeah but um but no no i've, I've been all over the uk yeah teaching oh, cool
0: Wait, we'll try we'll have to talk to mike grice mike grice tends to i'm actually make... coming
1: i'm actually coming to europe with the i'm to teach in paris in um, june next year now that depends on COVID and all that sort oh, of stuff, course yeah um but um but i mean i've been going there quite regularly over the last few years and um i was supposed to go there uh last year but that obviously was, wasn't going to happen but um so they plan they plan to get me back into in in june cool. of next year we'll so i mean that's yeah. yeah we'll
0: do that okay well look i don't want to keep you longer thank you so much um mark it's been a real pleasure um, people are already asking for a part two. We'll have to give him a rest now. Um, but I think that would be fantastic as well. Uh, maybe we could have a – yeah, maybe we could mix you on screen with um, with John Givens. That would be quite interesting. But we'll see. For now, thank you once again to my guest, uh, Dr. Mark Laslett. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next Tuesday. Get vaccinated, people. Get vaccinated.
1: Please get vaccinated. <laughs> there's, there's the fun. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, no, I'm, 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 I, in two days, I'm getting my first jab and then i'll in three weeks later i'll get my other one and just get vaccinated don't be an yeah. anti-vaxxer i'm sorry you know just just do it i'm not i'm i'm not gonna wait for somebody to to comment on that
0: right somebody will somebody somebody I will know, say
1: oh yeah, bill gates is putting a chip on you and i uh, no just get vaccinated please so um, that we can start traveling again that'd be nice
0: that would be nice that's a good reason Right, people we'll see you next tuesday thanks so much take care <laughs> You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about.